Hi, and welcome to the Veterans Legal Lowdown, brought to you by Chisholm, Chisholm, and Kilpatrick, a law firm representing veterans nationwide. In each episode, we break down a different VA disability topic or share our take on the latest VA benefit news. Hi, everyone. This is the Veterans Legal Lowdown from Chisholm, Chisholm, and Kilpatrick. My name is Maura Clancy. And my name is Carrie Baker. And today we are discussing ALS and MS claims at VA. Let's start with a general discussion about presumptive service connection, because this is an idea that comes into play when we talk about MS and ALS. So can you briefly tell us first what presumptive service connection is and what the significance of it is? All right, so presumptive service connection in general, um, to better understand presumptive service connection, it's, it's, it's better to understand what you normally require for service connection. Generally, that's three elements, and that is uh, an event in service, and that could be an injury, could be an exposure, and sometimes it could just be service in uh, the instance of these two disabilities, uh, the diagnosis of what you're claiming, and a medical nexus between the two. A presumption of service connection uh, relieves one's ability to have to submit that nexus, that medical link between the two. Um, So if all other sort of boxes are checked, but you don't have uh, a medical link between the MS or the ALS in this case, uh, you won't need one if the rest of the presumptive service connection uh, provisions apply. So this is a really important topic because, as Kerry said, it's a lot easier to get service connection for a condition if it's been recognized as a presumptive condition in the list somewhere. Um, So it removes the nexus element, as Kerry said, and that's usually where we see the most traction um, with claims. Usually the in-service event um, can be easy to come by in terms of getting evidence of that, mm-hmm. and usually the current disability is is understood, but it's mm-hmm. usually getting that opinion to connect the two that can be difficult. So in these cases, you don't need that extra element, which is great. Um, so let's first start off with talking about ALS. Um, what do we mean by ALS? What does it stand for? And what are the symptoms of that condition? So ALS stands for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. A lot of people know it as Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, and it, I'm obviously no medical doctor, so I can't explain all the medical aspects of it, but it is simply a neurodegenerative disease that will eventually leave you paralyzed from head to toe. Uh, and eventually, uh, it's a fatal disease. Um, it's, it's pretty much, uh, um, you know, the life expectancy is normally a few years after you have it diagnosed. Some people have occasionally lived longer, uh, but by that point in time, you're usually paralyzed on your, over your whole body. So, needless to say, we're talking about very severe. Extremely severe uh, disability. And effects. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, there's a presumption for ALS. The presumption, right. Uh, the, so, the presumption for ALS is interesting. It's not based on an exposure. Mm-hmm. Neither is MS. Uh, anybody that served on active duty uh, for the required amount of time uh, and later contracts MS, VA will presume that that MS. That, I'm sorry. That later that later is diagnosed with ALS. 
VA will presume that that ALS began on active duty or was somehow caused by active duty. And that's it. Uh, so there's no link, uh, you know, there's no exposure requirement. Um, so it's really one of the cleanest presumptions out there mm-hmm. uh, for most for the most part. So we'll get more into the criteria after what what the only criteria are that you have to meet in order to um, satisfy the presumption mm-hmm. and then eventually get service connection. But um, if you know, do you know why they decided to create the presumption of service connection for ALS? Yeah, I'm not I'm not a hundred percent up to speed on all the details of the history, but uh, a number of years ago. VA was looking into uh, multiple diseases. I believe it started, I believe, in, if, you, if I'm wrong in this, somebody please leave a note and tell me I'm wrong, but I believe it started with the Gulf War issues, uh, and they were looking at uh, ALS uh, in relation to that. And once all was said and done and the research was complete, they realized that ALS was higher among veterans who served on active duty, period. Regardless of where they served, when they served, uh, what they may have been exposed to. Uh, and it was so much higher that that once that report came out, the Secretary of VA, uh, under his, his own authority, decided to make uh, ALS a presumptive service-connected disability for anybody that served on active duty uh, in the military. So, pretty much a lot of uncertainty about why it crops up so much in service members might mm-hmm. have, you know, led to the the decision to make it a presumption. Right. Um, I think it's similar in a, in a way to the presumptions that extend to veterans who were exposed to herbicides. Mm-hmm. There's just no way to know whether a person was or wasn't or to what degree the exposure affected them later on. So they right. just decide to say that across the board, everyone should be entitled to the presumption because right. they're not going to be able to figure out the specifics. And so that's right. why they create things like that. Um, under what conditions can you not get service connection or be entitled to the presumption for service connection for ALS um, if you were a service member? Very good question. And the main one is if you were in the reserves or National Guard. Uh, inactive duty, inactive duty for training, for, excuse me, inactive duty, inactive duty for training, that type of thing. It does not count as active duty for the presumption of ALS. Uh, ALS in the regulations is not tied into any of the regulations concerning exposures to whatever, Agent Orange, any other any other type of exposure. Uh, it's just tied to being in the military, but the wording in the regulation uh, has been interpreted to be limited to active duty. Okay. Uh, and there's Federal Circuit case law that confirms that, so, um, you know that that pretty much ends the debate on ALS. It has to be active duty. Can't be reserves. Mm-hmm. Can't be uh, National Guard. And what about is there a, a time limit or a, a time minimum that you have to have served for to be able to get the presumption? I want to say it's ninety days or more on active duty. Um, you know, I hear rumors out there, and they're incorrect usually that you have to serve for two years or one year. Uh, but uh, I believe it's 90 days of active duty, and that uh, that does it. And what about evidence that VA might try to produce that rebuts the presumption? Is there any way that they could um, provide evidence that shows that ALS is attributable to something else, and so the presumption wouldn't extend to the, the veteran? 
Well, all presumptions are rebuttable, um, but it requires a higher level of evidence, significantly high in some circumstances, to rebut that presumption. Um, I have not personally ever seen that happen with ALS, where the veteran had the requisite amount of active duty, had the confirmed diagnosis of ALS. Uh, I have yet to see that presumption rebutted in any case. Uh, and I would be quite surprised if, you know, well, I wouldn't be surprised if it's happened, but if it has and, and you're listening out there, uh, that kind of case should be appealed immediately. So like Carrie said, presumptions can be rebutted, but there is a much higher evidentiary burden that's placed on the government if they want to try to say that you, you aren't entitled to the presumption. If you meet all the other parameters for it, they need to produce um, more evidence that's a lot at a more stringent standard than usual in, in service right. connection cases. Um, what about the time frame after service that ALS manifests? Is there um, is there a certain limitation? So, for instance, does it have to manifest within a certain amount of time after service, or is it no. just whenever it comes up? Not currently. No, no time limit for ALS. Okay, and that's a that's that's a really big <clears throat> benefit for those. You know, lots of things have time limits. Uh, or at one point or another had time limits when you're talking about presumptions. Uh, but no, no time limit for ALS. Great. And uh, just as a reminder to anyone who maybe has um, tuned in a little bit late, my name is Maura Clancy. I'm here with Carrie Baker. We're here today at Chisholm, Chisholm and Kilpatrick. We're talking about ALS and MS and the presumptions of service connection that are extended to those disabilities. So we just get finished talking about ALS. Um, how there's some uncertainty about what causes it. We talked mm -hmm. about the parameters for presumptive service connection for ALS and also um, the fact that there is no time limitation after service that it has to manifest in in order for you to get the presumption. Um, we're going to turn to MS now, which mm -hmm. is a totally different condition, and so it comes with some different rules, and the mm -hmm. presumption differs a little bit. So um, first of all, can you tell us what MS stands for and what the condition causes. So what are the effects of MS that are common in um, persons with this disability? So MS is multiple sclerosis. Uh, it also is a, a sort of a neurodegenerative diseases. It causes uh, white matter lesions in the brain, white matter lesions on the spinal cord. Uh, it causes demyelinating uh, damage to the long axons of the nerves. And, and I know that's kind of technical, Basically what that means is you have a cholesterol sheath that surrounds the long nerves of the body. Uh, it's called the myelin sheath. And so anything demyelinating destroys that sheath and eventually uh, you know, affects the movement of that extremity, uh, the strength of the extremity, you know, depending on obviously the severity of the condition. Some people uh, you know, do fairly well in managing MS and other cases just go downhill really fast. In addition to the physical effects, are there any mental effects that but are common with there MS? Are, there are uh, significant mental effects, especially the more advanced it is, uh, the significant uh, sleep difficulties that just aids to the mental defects. Uh, there's dementia. I mean, there's there's a host of things that could, and it doesn't happen in every case. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, there's a host of mental uh, effects that could be that could be related to MS. And do we know what causes MS? So what factors or um, exposures a person might have in their lifetime that are going to bring on this condition? 
I, you know, it's it's thought to be an autoimmune disease. Uh, things affecting the autoimmune system could bring it on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, I, I as far as VA is concerned, however, uh, it, MS is not presumptive to a certain exposure. Uh, you know, that's just not how the MS uh, uh, presumptive service connection works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm sure you'll ask me about that, but. Uh, as far as VA is concerned, under VA rules and regs, there's no specific exposure to something that's going to lead to MS. Mm-hmm. And not to say that the scientific community uh, shares that same belief. There are obviously certain things that show a higher prevalence of MS after exposure to you know any particular substance, but that would be outside the realm of VA. Okay, and like we just talked about with ALS, there are no. Um, time constraints after service that the disability has to manifest in. Mm -hmm. That is not the case for MS, is that right? That's right. So what are the parameters for being entitled to service connection or presumptive service connection for MS? And how how far after service does it have to start coming up? So the seven years is the short answer. So the, the symptoms have to have manifested within seven years of discharge from the military. Um, and that's a little tricky because the, a lot of the regulations on presumptives will tell you, well, it has to manifest to a degree of 10% or more during the presumptive period. Um, you know, what if you don't have the diagnosis yet for 10 years after, uh, but you started having symptoms five years after service and they found out that you know, those symptoms were actually the onset of MS. Well, MS has a minimum rating of 30%. So you always meet that 10%. Um, so you just have to, I mean, I'm saying that to, to, in order to, so that you understand, you have to show that the symptoms uh, of MS had their onset within seven years of service. That usually gets you the presumptive service connection for MS. Okay. And we actually have a question that I think is relevant to the presumptive period that you were just talking about. So this question is from Jennifer. Thank you, Jennifer, for tuning in today. Uh, Jennifer is asking if a physical wasn't done at retirement and symptoms were present during active duty and MS was diagnosed later, is that service connected? Maybe. <laughs> uh, there's a few things the question leaves out. Uh, it, if if the MS was still diagnosed within seven years, it don't matter if you had a physical at, at exit uh, or not. Um, non 99% of the time, uh, a, a discharge exam is not going to show MS unless you're really having symptoms during the military service. So in a situation like that, if you didn't have an exit physical getting out of the military, but you had symptoms then or any time from then into that seven-year window, so the question then becomes is how do you show VA that you had those symptoms? And there's a plethora of ways to do that. You can do it with lay statements. So the first thing you'd want to do is explain to VA in very detailed manner what your symptoms were while on active duty or any time within that seven-year window, uh, be it weakness in extremities, uh, eyesight, slurred speech, any of the things that MS might might cause. Uh, anybody else that can supplement that claim with lay statements, friends, relatives, um, uh, you know, and then probably the most important would be a medical nexus or medical opinion 
from someone indicating that, yes, these particular symptoms that veterans talking about uh, as likely as not were the onset of the MS. And as long as that onset can be placed within that seven-year window, you should get service connection for it. Great. And that's really helpful because um, oftentimes there's no diagnosis within the seven-year period, but the law doesn't require the diagnosis. So sometimes you want to be sure to look at what symptoms were the basis for the diagnosis and whether Mm -hmm. you can trace those symptoms back to within the seven-year period. That can be helpful, as you said, by Mm -hmm providing lay statements from the veteran or from others with personal knowledge of the veteran symptoms and also treatment records. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you might have treatment records within the seven-year period that are documenting, uh, you know, certain deficits and later on the MS diagnosis is based on precisely those things. Mm -hmm. So all of that can be very helpful, but as Carrie said, it's important to be detailed and it's important to give as much information that you have to substantiate um, or to link the, the symptoms that fuel the yeah. diagnosis later that they, they were present before. Yeah, and as you know, we've had plenty of cases where the official diagnosis came many years mm-hmm. after, not you know not even close to seven years after service, maybe 10 years, 15 years after service. But there was you know some shift in eyesight or some shift in strength and uh, an ability to, to not grip as strong or not walk as fast or not well, I would say walk so but not have as much strength in your legs. I mean something, mm-hmm. uh, and if you can verify that was somehow reported to somebody that you know that that's worth its weight in gold, and you want to focus on that, and then have any examiner focus on those symptoms as well. You as a layman, most veterans out there are laymen; they're not medical experts. You know, you're not competent under the law to diagnose yourself, obviously, or to say when the MS began. But you are competent under the law. Uh, to state, well, I noticed my right leg getting weaker um, before I got out of the service. And a year later, it was going numb. Uh, I didn't think anything about it. Then it got better. And then a year later, it came back. And I say that because MS can wax and wane. Uh, It it can kind of show up a little bit and then kind of go away. and so those can be the, the beginning symptoms of MS. So all of that stuff becomes extremely important in MS cases. And one more question specific to MS. I don't remember if you covered it, so I apologize no. if you already did. But um, did the, the presumption does not extend to um, reservists or National Guard service members. Is that right? Or does it depend? <sighs> that hasn't been litigated yet. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, that's to answer that question fully, I kind of got to get off topic a little bit. Um, there's, there's case law that, that pretty much tells us now, the reservists and National Guard, they're not going to get the presumption for ALS. Um, we, we're not, I don't really know how to answer that with MS. Okay. Okay. And I say that because mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's no case law that I'm aware of. But at the same time, there are other presumptions that VA has put into place where National Guard and reservists do count uh, for the presumption where they didn't used to. Mm-hmm. So VA's changed some of their regulations dealing with C-123s and herbicide exposure, Camp Lejeune and the contaminated water, where reservists or National Guard are included there. Uh, ironically, when they did that, was, for example, with the C-123s, 
they didn't change the law with respect to the reservists or National Guard members who actually served in Vietnam. I think that was an oversight on their part. I don't think it was intentional. But, you know, so that, that, I'd say the, the, the answer is still out there uh, for, for MS. Okay. So still a bit of a question mark there. Yeah. Okay. Um, once again, everyone, we're here today at Chisholm, Chisholm and Kilpatrick. My name is Maura Clancy and I'm here with Carrie Baker. We're talking about ALS and MS. And Carrie, now I want to talk about um, what happens when ALS and MS are service connected. So okay. what happens in the rating process for those conditions? So first of all, let's take ALS first. Okay. How does that condition get rated? Well, uh, as of a few years ago, there's it has one rating and that's 100% mm -hmm. because it's a fatal disease um, and it, you know it's, it's it's going to disable you 100% and beyond um, so the rating schedule requires a 100% rating but as the disease advances I'm sure you'll be asking about SMC and I'm gonna get ahead of you but as the disease advances uh, it may easily go beyond 100%. And I'll just wait for your question okay. on that. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> so minimum 100%. Minimum 100%. Pretty straightforward. Yep. And what about ratings for MS? MS has a minimum rating of 30%, all right? Uh, and that would apply in a case where the diagnosis is confirmed, but if you rate the individual symptoms uh, under their own diagnostic codes, they don't exceed 30%, then that would be incorrect to, to write it that way. You would rate the MS as, as, as a whole at 30%. Uh, most of the time, you're going to have residuals of MS being in your arms, legs, speech, digestive tract, mental health, or whatever, that, that have so many residuals. Mm -hmm. uh, the rule is to rate those residuals under their own independent diagnostic code if there is one that normally will result in a much higher rating than 30%. Mm -hmm. None of those things exist. They have to at least give you 30% just for the diagnosis. So since the the rating for ALS is, it is what it is, it's just mm -hmm. the 100%, but particularly with MS, what kinds of evidence would be helpful for people to submit to be able to show that their residuals should be rated at a certain rate or what types of evidence can uh, claimants produce that would try to get them the highest rating possible? Okay. Uh, the best evidence is medical evidence showing the function, the functional, uh, the remaining functional ability of pretty much what you have from head to toe. Uh, you know, what, what disabling effects do you have in your upper extremities? Mm -hmm. uh, what do you have in your lower extremities? Uh, do you have uh, constipation? A lot of people with MS get that. Uh, do you have, you know, depression? Um, and so, a, for example, a very, very full physical from your from your doctor explaining what each of those symptoms, uh, re, you know, result in. And so you can have weakness in one leg, but can you still use your leg? Can you walk on your leg? Or do you have to use a wheelchair or a walker? The difference, you know, could very well be the difference between a low rating and a high rating. Uh, VA is, if, they, if it all goes right, VA should answer that job for you. Because if you have MS and it is service connected, they and they provide a, a compensation and pension examination. Those those MS exams are designed to answer all those questions. Okay. Um, but you could have your own doctor do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Now, none of that works. You don't have any of that stuff for whatever reason in your record. Then still, you can supplement the record with lay evidence, uh, as long as it's things that are uh, reportable 
by a lay person under the law like like you know my my husband can't stand up for more than five minutes or he can't walk at all weird and we'll you know those are things that any lay person can observe and report on mm -hmm. uh, so that can that can help as well especially if the medical evidence doesn't portray all of the true effects mm -hmm. and so the fact that VA should be getting a CMP or a compensation and pension exam to assess the severity of the residuals and the condition in order to assign the rating is great uh, but as Carrie said lay evidence can also be very helpful particularly to make sure that VA is on notice that you have a certain mm -hmm. type of residual mm -hmm. um, and given that MS is a gradual gradually worsening condition mm -hmm. you may be developing residuals um, years after your diagnosis or getting service connected that you didn't have before and so if VA is going to send you for an exam I think you'd be wise to make sure that they're aware of all the different types mm -hmm. of residuals so that they can assess them mm -hmm. and that's going to maximize the chances of getting an accurate and yeah. higher rating and, and context is really important uh, and I say that because if you look at a lot of treatment records with people with MS you might see uh, a neurologist, you know, say looking at somebody's ability to ambulate, looking at their ability to walk, and they explain their progress as doing great. Mm -hmm. you, know, uh, you know, my patient has improved, he's getting better, or he's doing well on this particular rehab. But they might be answering the question in the context of, he's doing great for somebody that can barely walk and has MS. Mm -hmm. It's not doing great compared to the average person who goes out and runs three miles a day. So the context there is quite important sometimes and I have seen plenty of cases where VA has misinterpreted that type, those type of statements by a doctor mm -hmm. and, and took them as, oh, well then you know, your rating shouldn't be that high. Uh, you know, 10% for a weakness of an extremity versus loss of use of that extremity. You know, those are really important differences. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a point that applies to a lot of a lot of different cases, mm -hmm. a lot of especially increased rating cases. If you are being sent to examinations for MS and you're trying to get a higher rating for your residuals and the exam is doing something that Carrie described, which is maybe taking some things out of context or um, not giving enough details about the severity of your condition, mm -hmm. definitely think about supplementing those examinations with lay evidence, either from you or someone that knows about your symptoms because right. that can be really helpful. Um, um, sometimes the answer is that they need to get a whole new exam and if you let them know that the exam that you had was not adequate they might mm -hmm. be more inclined to do that and that might help you in the long run right. um, and then the last thing I want to talk about is other benefits that are available not just the scheduler ratings mm -hmm. to persons who are service connected for ALS and MS and you alluded to um, SMC earlier so right. one of the benefits that comes into play in these cases a lot is special monthly compensation, mm -hmm. which is compensation that is designed to pay you um, at a rate that's higher than the scheduler ratings usually because it's a recognition that your disability is more exceptional, special in nature, mm -hmm. and it warrants additional compensation. So do you want to briefly talk about what kinds of SMC maybe would be in play? I know sure. we've done other um, presentations about SMC generally that people might find helpful, but okay. what about in this context? Well, if, if you're unfamiliar with what SMC is in general, I would definitely go look at some of our other videos and, and online training on what SMC is because it gets extremely complex. Mm -hmm. uh, we could not get into all the SMC here. Um, <clears throat> that's its own video and own class. But uh, 
with MS especially and ALS especially, uh, as the disease progresses, you know, obviously ALS is going to start at 100%. MS, you know, if it becomes service-connected when it's not very severe, it may start at 30%. Uh, but eventually it's going to get up to that 100% rate. Now, what a lot of people do to, it, because they don't, you know, maybe they're more focused on their health care and their family matters. And they, you know, once they reach a certain level like ALS with 100% or MS with 100%, that's as far as they go with their case. Uh, they might believe, well, that's all they can get. Uh, you know, I've got 100%, what else can I do? But as the disease progresses and say, take either one of them, it doesn't matter which one, say it, it, it gets to the point where you're confined to a wheelchair. Uh, well, now you can't use your legs, so you may have loss of use of both legs. That pays SMC, a special monthly compensation rate, above 100%. Uh, not in addition to the 100%, so don't, don't get those two mixed up. Uh, there's an SMC rate for all kinds of things, and they, you know, all of them that go, uh, except for the one called SMCK, which is about 125 bucks extra a month, Everything else already contemplates starting at 100%. So if you have lost use of both legs, instead of getting 100%, you're going to get at a minimum SMC at the L rate, which is you know six seven hundred dollars higher than the 100% rate. Uh, once you advance to say loss of use of your upper extremities, and you know normally with those two diseases that's going to happen at some point, especially ALS. Um, you may have lost use of all four extremities. Um, and before it ever gets to any of those points, you may need the aid and, aid and attendance of somebody else just to help you with the daily needs of living. So, you know, that you might be entitled to aid and attendance, but uh, that's equal to SMCL, same thing you'd get for lost use of both legs. But at some point, you're going to become just bedridden. You know, unfortunately, with these, if, 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 either one of these diseases is what causes a veteran's death. That veteran's going to become bedridden. They're probably not going to be able to use their arms or their legs. They are going to probably going to be on life support to some degree. Uh, their mental health is going to be gone. They're not going to be able to speak. So in those circumstances, you're going to be eligible for some of the highest benefits VA has to offer, which is SMC at the R1 rate or at the R2 rate. Uh, just to put that in perspective, R2 is, a, is over $8,000 a month, close to $9,000 a month. Uh, obviously, you don't want to have that kind of disability. Mm -hmm. But as your disease progresses, if you're already at the 100% rate and you've been in a wheelchair for the past year, uh, but you think you might live another two or three years, you know, there's a lot of extra benefits there under the SMC rules. Uh, you don't have to just be fine with collecting the 100% rate mm -hmm. when you could be getting three times that much as the disease progresses. So, and all you have to do at that point is file an increased rating. Mm -hmm. uh, they'll examine you, and if you meet the qualifications for SMC in any of its forms, uh, they should be granting it. So a good thing to keep in mind um, when you're pursuing an increased rating that these benefits are available in addition to mm -hmm. the, um, the scheduler evaluations or the, the standard um, rates right. for the disabilities. And as Carrie said, you don't have to file anything specific to seek SMC benefits. Right. Um, 
it's actually supposed to be inferred by VA that you are seeking the highest rating possible whenever you're seeking a higher rating. So if you file an increased rating claim and they develop evidence that shows that you might be entitled to or are entitled to SMC, they're supposed to have those issues worked out on their own. Mm -hmm. um, it certainly can't hurt to mention it when you're working on an increased rating claim that you think you qualify for higher levels of special monthly compensation. Mm -hmm. um, and that'll certainly put the issue right under their nose. But um, at the same time, if the evidence shows that you're entitled to those benefits, then they're supposed to be at least thinking about them. Right. Um, in addition to SMC, another benefit that we um, that might be on the table for someone with ALS or MS is TDIU or mm -hmm. temporary disability rating based on individual unemployability. Um, mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that might be relevant in these cases? I, th I think it would be more relevant in MS cases than ALS cases since the ALS is already going to be rated 100%. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, having said that, it, you know, you might have something else service-connected in addition to the ALS that could cause you to be unemployable irrespective of the ALS. Now, if that's the case, you want to apply for unemployability based on the disease or diseases that's causing the unemployability except for the ALS. And I said because that you could end up with 100% for ALS and and TDIU or, or at least a 60% or higher uh, for some non-ALS related disability and get you up to the first uh, SMC rate, SMC the houseband rate or SMCS as we call it. Um, you want to rephrase the rest yeah, of the question? Yeah, so, <laughs> sorry. So you said that TDIU is a little more relevant with MS. MS, yes, because yes, because MS, you're not, you know, obviously there's no guarantee of 100%. The minimum is rating 30%. You, you may end up anywhere from 30% to 90%, but, be, but have enough residuals that obviously it prevents you from working. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, you definitely want to file for a temporary or a total disability based on unemployability because you're probably going to get it. Uh, but again, when that happens, I urge you, don't think that's the end of the road. Mm -hmm. You might have, especially with MS, you, you might have numerous years of life left, but you may pr steadily, progressively get worse to the point where you could go above that 100%. So just because you're not 100% for MS, if you're not working, I would re uh, request TDIU uh, in a claim. But once you get to the point where you're you're not able to use extremities the way you used to you speak uh there's a whole different story there yeah. and it's kind of similar to smc tdiu or asking for a tdiu doesn't require that you make a specific claim for it mm -hmm. va does use a special form it's the 21-8940 for um determining your entitlement to tdiu so they will ask you to fill out that form but the important thing about tdiu benefits is that they can attach to an increased rating claim so if you're pursuing a higher rating for ms um, and you assert at some point in your pursuit of a higher rating that you cannot work due to the residuals of SM, uh, MS, then they are supposed to consider that a request for a total rating, a 100% rating based on unemployability. So again, it doesn't hurt to be explicit and ask for mm -hmm. what it is that you're seeking, but it's not something that requires a special form to get the ball rolling. Yeah. Yeah, on that note, if I can piggyback on that, you know, if you file a service connection claim for MMS and they grant it and say it's 60, 70, 80 percent uh, and you're not working at that point, 
uh, and it took them a couple of years to get to that particular rating. You want to make sure you file that TDIU claim within a year of that decision that, that gave you that rating because that's when that TDIU claim is going to attach to that original claim and it should go back to the same effective date as long as you weren't working at that point in time. Mm -hmm. Don't wait two years down the road to file your TDIU claim unless of course you're actually working um, because if you do that once you go over that one year past that rating decision then your TDIU at 100% is only going to go back to the day you file the claim. So really important uh, on effective dates there. That's good advice. Um, did you anything else you wanted to add about other benefits that might be available? Uh, with these, with these two particular disabilities and you know a whole plethora of others, uh, at some point you know you're you're going to progress to the point you know what you've heard me mention wheelchairs half a dozen times in this in this video. Um, once you reach that SMC rate like that, or depending on the various extremities, eyesight, and all, you may qualify for adaptive housing, uh, especially adaptive housing, automobile allowance, uh, where a VA assists in purchasing a house built around your disabilities or helps adapt a current house that you have uh, to fit your disabilities if the shelves need lower, the doors need widening uh, for wheelchairs, that type of stuff. Uh, automobiles, uh, there's special automobiles, uh, you know, if you need handheld controls or, or even if you can't drive, but you say you have a wife or spouse, you can actually still get the automobile allowance if somebody else has to drive the vehicle for you. Uh, so there are in, in other ancillary benefits there. Uh, and if you have any questions about them, give us a call or, or whoever your rep might be. Yeah, and I think that that last point is a good one that this can be um, a complicated area in a way. Mm -hmm. um, I think especially with the ratings mm -hmm. and it can be sometimes even difficult with MS cases to prove that you're within that seven year presumptive period. Mm -hmm. um, and if your diagnosis falls outside of that period and you find you're having difficulty um, having success on your claim, don't hesitate to reach out to a representative our colleagues at DAV, um, or just really anyone that you want to get in touch with um, to, to help you along. That's all I have. Did you have any final thoughts you wanted to add? I think that's it if there are no questions. No other questions? Great. Well, thank you everyone for joining us today, and we hope you will join us next time. This episode of the Veterans Legal Lowdown was produced by Chisholm, Chisholm & Kilpatrick, a law firm representing veterans nationwide in their VA disability claims. If you're interested in a free case evaluation with CCK, give us a call at 844-549-4500 or visit our website at cck-law.com.